Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday, so I'm going to try to take care of this today. The yard site, I see it's the Netsiv. There's a bunch of them today, but the one, the beginning I thought, I'm not going to do the Netsiv. That's such a big Pasha. And there's also a lot of legends and baloney, you know, Baba Mises. But when I look at all the others I get, and I did Rechaim last week. But in spite of myself, it's the one that just jumps out at me. So I'm going to talk for a little bit, you know, maybe 30 minutes or whatever, about this uh, great person. Even though it's sort of pointless because about the Nitzib, you you need... I was, without being funny, two hours, three hours, you know, just to get the basics. So only a few pieces about this very, very, very interesting person. And see, for those of you who know I'm talking about, because I know I have a variegated audience here, was a uh, big rabbi in Russia in the 19th century. He's famous as the Rosh Yeshiva of Voloshner Yeshiva, the number one yeshiva. Uh, that was his claim to fame. He was the head of the yeshiva for about close to 40 years. And uh, he's a classic Eastern European uh, gadol, but different uh, in many, many ways than than the elders and his contemporaries. So uh, let's get into basic facts over here, which themselves are interesting enough. The Nazif is not Sali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. That's his name. Uh, you know, uh, what was it? Hirsch something or other. Uh, Hirsch Leib, I think. Anyhow, uh, this is somebody's born in Mir. Isn't that interesting? The town of Mir. Um, which at that time had a very small yeshiva, and uh, came from rich family by the standards of that era. And there was a whole bunch of Baba Mice about how he was a dummy when he was young and things like that, but I'll try to steer clear as much as I can of the Baba Mice, as much as I can. Denitziv, therefore, was a young man who grew up in the, born in 1816, and he died in 1893, so he was 75, 76 years old. And he would have lived longer, you know, he died of a broken heart, shall we say, as we'll see. And so he's born in 1816. These, the, the years matter. I'll tell you why. Uh, and to a rich family, father was a businessman. Uh, because he's rich and came from a big yichas too, his uh, mother, for example, was a granddaughter, a great-granddaughter of the Panem Eros, a very big rabbi in Hungary. Um, I told you about a month ago now, uh, we were in Eisenstadt, and the Austro-Hungarian border, which is where the Pontemiris had his uh, lived, and has his that's where he's buried. And now they fixed up his grave, thanks to Donald Trump, as I mentioned. Uh, and his father, I remember they called him Rabbi Yaakov Baltosis for some reason. No, it must have been a big Talmud Chacham. Anyhow, fine. Uh, this is a young man, early in the 1800s, so Russia, Lithuania, you know, Belarus, we're still very from. He's growing up in the 1810s, and I mean, I'm sorry, 1816. So he's, you know, bar mitzvah around 1829. Well, guess what? He got married to Yuri's bar mitzvah. This is the old school baby. Our ancestors, many of them, got married real young, and the Talmud Chacham got young, young. So this is nuts. You're married when you're 13. He had his son when he was 15 years old. 
It's like today you read about, you know, in the inner city or something like that. Uh, the famous Reb Chaim Berlin, that they call Chaim Berlin after him, was the son of Naftoi Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the son of the Tziv. He was born when his father was 15 years old. So think about that close age uh, type situation. And when he's, uh, so he's got married when he's 13. Then eventually he moves. Who did he marry? See, he married the Gichas, the this daughter of the Rosh Hashiva Belashen, Rebitzel Belashener. So that's a big shidduch, which means he must have been smart and he came from well-to-do family. So it's uh, Belashener was also not poor. So this is the old days when you had Torg Dulam so to speak. You know, the families were well off financially. And the Nazis family, personal family, always was well off, which is why he was able to be ahead of Yeshiva and all that sort of thing. Years, his personal finances, he didn't have to worry about. He just had to worry about the Yeshiva. That's like an interesting side of some of these Gedolim, some of whom were dirt poor and some were not, and he was not. Okay, now, he comes as the Rosh Yeshiva's son-in-law. I mean, I want you to just think about this for a second. Suppose you're a boy in the Velozhny Yeshiva in 1830, uh, 1829, 1830. It's 10 years after the death of Chaim Velozhny. It's a Yitzhak Velozhny running Yeshiva. Yeshiva's a very serious place. Should be. Big, big learners. And here's some 13-year-old kid who's now the son-in-law of the Rosh Yeshiva. That's nuts. Okay? So he comes in already like, you know, sort of a, a... a contender, shall we say. And Rebitzel Voloshner had sons, but they weren't into learning. He had maybe one son or whatever. So this guy who's 13 years old is one day going to be a contender for the top job in the yeshiva. That just shows you, and he spent the rest of his life there. So from the time he's 13, approximately, till he's 75, he lives on one place in this town of Voloshner. He learns up a storm... They say that he didn't learn, he just did it by a small. I don't think any of that's true, as far as I'm aware. Anyway, but I know the stories. Anyhow, um, and if he's there, so he's, so he's there for 20 years, uh, from 1829 to 1849, uh, while his father-in-law is the Rosh Hashiva heading the place. And Rabitzik Volajan, who I spoke about here in this podcast a month or two ago, had a lot of uh, jobs on his hands. He was representing the Jews vis-a-vis the Russian government in the time of Tsar Nicholas I. They had a lot of trouble on their hands. So basically, he was a lot of times away from the yeshiva. And he had two sons-in-law who married his two daughters. One was this young guy, Naftolitzvi Yehuda Berlin, who we called the Nitziv. And the other one was a freed, I think Eliezer Yitzhak freed, something like that, who has uh, descendants in Baltimore, Maryland. The lady mentioned it to me not long ago. And they are growing up in their teens, their 20s, and their 30s. And they're the crown princes. You know, they're going to be the, the, the one day the heads of the yeshiva. Because this is a Lithuanian yeshiva. It's to go by nepotism. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be who, who is, whoever's related. Uh, and that's how it goes. Therein lies a tale. And so, uh, meanwhile, he's doing all this. In 1849, Rabitz died. So that means that Nitziv was uh, 33, 34 years old. Okay? And uh, the two sons-in-law are now the heads. They give the, the, the shear. Vlazhin gave a shear every day. I say it again, every day, a shear klali. Uh, I think they said by the daf. You know, you went through the whole shahs. Uh, but the Vlazhin, she was running a funny way. 
and it remained that way under the Tziv, and he was subject to criticism. It's a very free kind of thing. You went there and you learned whatever you wanted to learn. The yeshiva is an official masechta, and the shir is given on that. But that doesn't mean that this chabur, that chabur, these guys are necessarily learning that. The It's an old-fashioned yeshiva in a certain way, which was, listen closely to what I'm about to say. What is the purpose of yeshiva? Is it a kind of a college or a school? If it is, then you run it in the sense of some kind of organized curriculum. There's a, if I can use the term, there's a, a freshman year, a sophomore year, a junior year, a senior year, something along those lines, with different shiurim and uh, uh, adjusted to different levels, and uh, there's a certain kind of testing that's given, and all that sort of thing. That is one model of a school, no question about it. Then there's the other one, in which yeshiva is just a place you come to be with a bunch of other guys learning, they're very smart, and the, what shall I say, what's the right word? You know, from the interaction that you have, you just pick it up in the air, the friction, uh, talking to other people, uh, hawking and learning, uh, they're learning the same thing you are, they're learning something different. The atmosphere is created, we have like an electric, you understand? And really the boy's coming there to immerse himself in a, uh, a world of high-level Torah study and to develop each one according to his own way. And most importantly, it's supposed to make an emotional and intellectual impression on you which should stay the rest of your life. Because after all, Yeshiva is a limited time. You're there for a couple of years and then you're out. And when you're out, that's when you do the rest of your life. You do your learning, right? So how's that going to happen? Unless the four years, five years, ten years that you were in Yeshiva really made a tremendous impact on you and your personality, a formative one. So in that case, Rosh Yeshiva is not necessarily somebody who's uh, a professor. And you could be by there. There were Yeshivas like that. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, somebody gives a very organized, masoderdika curriculum type of approach to Talmud study. But rather, the model is one in which you come to be near great minds and have some personal relationship with them. And you just bagaistered, as you say, just, just blown away. And this leaves, as I say, and you have a Rebbe. And for the rest of your life, you have shaykhs with this person or set of people, and that's the guiding force in your life. It's, it's, a, it's a different model. Uh, and that's what the Velocity Shiva seems to have been. And uh, so here he has somebody who from the time he's 32, 33, the father-in-law died, so him and the brother-in-law, the, the, the Natsiv and Eliezer Freed, I think was the other name, uh, were the two uh, Rosh Hashivas. But within a few years, uh, Freed died young. You know, they're both in their 30s. They died. So that means the Natsiv's left alone as the head of the Shiva. Not necessarily. That's when also Soloveitchik came. Uh, we're talking about the 1850s now. Soloveitchik came, I'm talking about the Beis Alevi, the father of Chaim Soloveitchik, and the Shiva requires two, the, the custom was the Shiva requires two Magad Shears, so one will be Nitzim, one will be the Soloveitchik. The Soloveitchik was not an intriguer, and, you know, a politician that way, at least as far as I can ascertain. But nevertheless, the fact is, when you have two people in charge, it's very tricky, because if it's not clear who's the boss, then students immediately form cliques and an atmosphere of politics and uh, competition and uh, Lashon Hara can and did uh, appear. And I think it's fairly well known that um, the Nitziv and the Beis Alevi were different in many ways, and though the Nitziv really very much wanted Beis Alevi to be part of the uh, hierarchy because he really contributed so much with his shiurim, 
Um, but nevertheless, it was a lot of personal friction. And that's why they brought that famous, you know, they couldn't settle it on their own. And that's why they brought that famous based in that I really don't want to go into a great deal today because it'll take up too much of my time. Of three, four people, one was the Arnold Yitzchel Hanum, one was the Magid of uh, Vilna, and I never forget the one was the Nachos David. And they uh, came to the Yeshiva and they decided that Nitziv wins and the other one should be subordinate to him. That Nitziv is number one, he should head the Yeshiva, and the Beis Alevi, as he's called, Yosheb uh, Salvechik, should be number two, which he accepted for about 10 years. Uh, so it's from like 1855 to 1865, something like that. Uh, the Yeshiva had two heads, and Nitziv was the official one, and the other one, the Salvechik, rep- respected the Pesach of the Basin, but it really grated him because eventually he left. In 1865, he left. And he moved away. That's why I told you last week about Rechaim Salvechik. But that's part of it. Uh, there were others um, who tried to undermine him. And this became sort of a, a part of his biography because, generally speaking, Dinitziv, who run the yeshiva officially from 1853 to 1893, officially, um, and was the head of the yeshiva during that time and saw it grow and become um, beyond world famous, was a person who had not an easy life, but was constantly under attack. That's right, under attack from what I would identify as three distinct sources, A, B, and C. Uh, the first one would be the Russian government, which never gave approval for the existence of yeshiva. This is Tsarist Russia, where everything's supposed to be under government control. Uh, in the time of Chaim and Mitzel, you know, they always tried to stay low under the radar, but they couldn't entirely. Uh, but that's how Yeshiva survived. It was actually, it was closed down officially, if I remember correctly, in the 1820s. But they just bribed the local officials to say the Yeshiva doesn't exist, and, you know, that's how they got away with it. But as the 19th century unfolds, it's harder and harder to do that, because first of all, you get telegraph, and second of all, the Jews have uh, Moschelic uh, newspapers and things like this, and they, and they tell on you. And so to deceive all of his life was always uh, walking on uh, tenderhooks, uh, you know, it had to do like a tightrope, not to get the Russian government to close down the yeshiva, which eventually they did in 1893, 1892. So uh, he constantly had the, you know, minus P's and Q's. He eventually got the yeshiva recognized, right or wrong, as an official uh, educational institution around 1880, but it wasn't easy. This had to do all with bribing and lobbying and things like that. But it may have turned out that, that was a wrong move because once you're an official Russian institution, the government can interfere at any time, and that's what they eventually did. So I'm simply saying, here you have somebody who was Rosh Hashiva and trying to do all the other things he did in his very interesting and colorful life and very productive life, but always worried about the Russian officials. You know, uh, that's number one. I mean, you know, I don't know how, how he didn't have ulcers. Number two, that was an, what I would call an external kind of a, a threat from the Gaim. Then number two, he had a constant uh, external threat from a different source, and that's the Haskalah. Because the years 1853 to 1883 are the years of the Russian Haskalah, when in uh, Lithuania and Belarus and uh, Poland, those places, Ukraine, that's when the Moskilm were uh, uh, full-throated. It was a, a big movement. What do I mean when I say big movement? The Haskalah was always a tiny movement. But it's a movement among those who can read and write. And... Um, including those with money. And uh, this was the period when the Hebrew newspapers popped up. 
the famous Arbavis Nazikin, you know, the Melitz and the Magid and the Shachar and the, what was the other one, whatever, Hatzfira. And uh, one of the uh, article, one of the subjects you used to find in the newspaper all the time is Fas Tutsuch and the Velozhin Yeshiva. And was always criticizing, everybody's always writing articles. The head didn't see if he's a this, he's a that, he's too narrow minded, he won't allow any secular studies. Um, you know, he won't uh, give the rabbis any professional training to be rabbis, uh, all kind of things like that. Basically, if you ever read these articles, and they've been written up, there are articles about them online, uh, it reminds me very much of the plague that we have today called the comment section, right? Uh, the headquarters of the stupid. Uh, everybody can comment. And a lot of times what happens, you forget the article, the commenters are fighting each other. This is much what happened in the 19th century because the rise of a, of a press, of a newspaper, has democratized the voices. Anybody with a pen can write a, a, a letter in criticizing Yeshiva and can get published, just the same way now anybody can just say whatever comment they want. And the old attitudes of deference or things like that were gone. And as a result, I would say for all of his lifetime, about 40 years or close to it, that he was always under fire because the Moschino did not like his way he ran the yeshiva. Now, that means that the Velazhin Yeshiva always, always had among the student body a bunch of Moschino. Not all, obviously, but they had a fair number. It's a tricky business because it was not a Musri Yeshiva, but on the other hand, uh, they did have Mashkichim, but on the other hand, the attitude was everybody can learn whatever they want and let each one develop in their own way. On the other hand, they were afraid that if the Haskalah uh, boy, the boys start reading all these books and newspapers and things like this, which they certainly did, so this will lead them to become not from, which happened fairly often. And so you had a very wild and interesting, fascinating but dangerous atmosphere in the town of Volozhin because, um, by definition, a yeshiva is a potentially dangerous institution. Uh, it's interesting what I'm saying. Consider... Yeshiva is where you get a bunch of boys. First of all, it's boys. Second of all, they're all smart, otherwise they wouldn't get in. Third of all, you not only have learning, yes, you too, you also have bull sessions. And so people are sitting around whenever it happens, at nighttime, this place, that place, hawking and shooting bull on all kinds of matters. So it could be that they're just talking about tosis, but it could also be they're talking about limurichol, uh, science, history, which is the hot topic in the 19th century, Haskalah in general, which was a hot topic, uh, is the yeshiva run well, is the yeshiva not run well, what's the problem with the different rebbeim, what's the problem with the whole attitude of here, what's the problem with the belief in God, you see what I'm saying? A yeshiva is, among other things, a dangerous, potentially dangerous place, because you have a collection together of a bunch of smart boys from all over the place, and they kind of have a certain hefkeris. Uh, this is the reason why the Hasidim in the 19th century, in many, many places, did not want yeshivas. I think the Divri Chaim is one who says, yeshivas mitamim hakamusim that We don't yeshivas for reasons we know best, and that's, they, they, they didn't like all bunch of boys getting together. The Hasidim preferred the old, old way, which is in every little village, the five, ten boys sit and learn in the local base matters. And another village, another five, and another village, another five. And uh, that way you don't have any large collection of these kids. But when you have what you call Lithuanian yeshiva, where you have a, a boys from all over the place, by the tens, by the hundreds even, 
then you have uh, the potential for a lot of people shooting in the mouth and calling big trouble. And uh, this really did happen, which is why to be the Rosh Hashiva Velazhin, forget the czarist officials, that's one problem. Here's another one. You had to set up um, a snitch system, which is never fun uh, to have everybody spying on everybody else to know which of the guys that are quote-unquote dangerous. That's not a great atmosphere, you understand? But on the other hand, I don't want all the boys getting together on Tuesday evening at so-and-so's apartment, and they're bringing in how many books, and they're, you know, uh, making debates and speeches on some kafir dicka topic, or I don't know, whatever it was going on over there. Like I say, there's a lot of literature on there, and therefore, if you're in the sieve, you just simply have no choice but to set up a spy system to everybody's telling everybody else to know that you on, on top of what's happening. And there are plenty of boys during his regime that were thrown out of the yeshiva on this occasion, that yeshiva, on this occasion or that occasion because of uh, Haskalah or things la- along those lines. And it made the Velazhin have a funny, uh, you know, a profile for that particular reason. Uh, a third source of attack was Mamish internal yeshiva dynastic politics. So, um, he wanted to be the Rosh Hashiva, and he got the job eventually, and the other one died. But uh, I remember his, what was it again? His wife's nephew, or something like that, was uh, Yeshua Hashalavin, and uh, from Vilna, from a millionaire family, and he moved to Velazhin, he wanted to take over. And he would interrupt the shear when the Nitzvah is giving it, and say, it's a lousy shear, I can give a better shear. Can you believe it? And the boys are clapping, and uh, he organized strikes. And he set himself up as a like an alternative base medrash in the town of Lushen. There's an article, it's obscure, from Titron, the famous uh, Moschilic uh, author, who talks about, I remember it's called, the, 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 in Hebrew, the Battle of the Dynasties in Lushen, which, oh boy, they got all the Lushen hard over there. And uh, you indeed had, what shall I say, a lot of uh, uh, dynastic politics, who should be the head? Uh, you wouldn't believe the level that we're talking about over here. I mean, the, 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 uh, this other guy, Yeshua Heschel Levin, who was a Talmud Chacham. In fact, he wrote the official uh, biography of the Vildegum. You, you've seen it, Ali Yisraelio. Uh, and he was a Maggid later on. But he wanted to take over. And he said, and the was a loser. And I'm better. And the Shiv doesn't have a curriculum. I'll introduce a curriculum. And I'll give uh, a little bit of Haskell, a little bit of Haskell in there and uh, things like that, and oh my goodness, it was a couple of years that was really, really tough, and Nitzvah uh, almost lost his job. Uh, the other guy overplayed his hand, is what happened in the end, and uh, the other Jews from other communities sort of dissed him and, and, and backed Nitzvah, and then he had to leave. So it's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of inside uh, dirty politics going over there. Mind you, they, they made strikes, uh, they, they had all kind of shtick, you see we stick to uh, interrupt the studies, uh, they would drop, uh, what is it, uh, lanterns and smash, and you make a loud noise in the middle of base manager, oh, it's all kind of things, Whenever, it's not a quiet, easy place for many of the years, you know, sometimes it was, but sometimes it was not a quiet, easy place, and in the middle of all this, the poor Nitzvah had to go and try to keep the Yeshiva going, try to find food uh, for the boys every day, uh, try to uh, help people pay for the rent. Uh, you know, all the administrative things that go along over there with the building burning down every once in a while because this is Russia and you have Miss O'Leary's cow. You know, it's a uh, fires do happen. 
Now, that means that in addition to everything I just described, in addition to giving the shear all the time, making sure the place runs it doesn't blow up on you, uh, you had to fundraise, right? And run the uh, economic, the, the administrative side of it, all the one-man show. That's why he's always running almost by Voda. You know, I'm crushed by all my different burdens of the office. And uh, I'll tell you something interesting. His son was 15, year, was 15 years younger than himself, right? Rechaim Berlin. And, uh, and Steve learned when he was young, which must have been quite a sight. You know, here's the father in his 30s, and his uh, son is, uh, like I said, only 15 years younger. And he got him a job, eventually, in Moscow to be the rov of the Jewish community in Moscow. Most Jews were not allowed to live in Moscow, so if you lived in Moscow, you had to be like a millionaire or somebody rich or powerful. And uh, Chaim Berlin, as the rabbi of the Jewish community, the small Jewish community in Moscow, he really raised a ton of money from these richy rich Jews who were the exceptions allowed to live there and from their relatives. And he really uh, helped the father a lot uh, in the fundraising. I remember he was able to, uh, when the building burned down, he got, he, they built a stone building, which was uh, really amazing. And that was considered a shame dover once upon a time. Then that building burned down, they built another one. That's the one you go to see today. I was in Volusia, me, myself, and I, uh, in 2017, when I went that crazy trip with those guys from YU, uh, from Teaneck. Uh, you can go online, and if you hit Volusia, you'll probably see the building. It's a white building. It's not so gigantic. Uh, it's not tiny. It's not gigantic. Near Israel bigger. And, uh, but this was the place where they once upon a time had it. Uh, I remember when I was there, they had a, a yeshiva was visiting some Israeli program where they take you from town to town to Yeshua boys uh, and, and, and say a shear over from somebody who, who uh, was there long ago. So Rabbi Kaplan from the Mirror. So uh, we walked in to the town of Voloshin, and which is a, a pretty interesting, and you see the Yeshiva building, which is really interesting. I walk in, there's like 100, 150 guys in black hats and, and jackets and all that uh, having a regular Yeshiva Seder. It was uh, kind of funny to see that. But that's not what it was most of the days of the year. But way back then it was. And the result is that he had a, a quite a, a challenge on his hands uh, just, to, just to run the place for 40 years and, uh, and, and keep on top. And you can understand the unbelievable pressure that he was in all the time, which is why I find it interesting that he was a human being. Every once in a while he lost his temper. And there's all these stories where he just lost it and, 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 and slapped and beat up the kids. I'm talking about slapping in the face and that sort of thing. And there's a wonderful story in um, Etkis as he collected what's called Yeshivot Lita Pirkei Zichronot. That's what he, he collected a bunch of these. It's, there's a book that's out there. If, you, if those of you interested can, can check it out. And remember, there was some guy named uh, Moskowitz or Mashvitsky, something like that, who said that he was, uh, this is a great story. I, I share it with you to, to show you, like I said, the, the, uh, the human side. Um, that it was Erev Shavuos, and the Nitziv, by the way, didn't just give a shear once a day or something on the Gemara, but in the morning he gave the uh, Hamik Dabr Day Chumash shear. It's, it's an interesting side of him. I don't know if I'll have time to get to it today. Like I said, I can go for two, three hours, and you can't. I, I'm only doing a, a piece here and a piece there of a large puzzle. Um, but you should go and do the reading on your own. But I just got to tell you the story. It was like Shavuos, Erev Shavuos. And he gave a class in the morning. And he said, everybody's going to get a haircut now. 
but make sure you don't cut off too much, you know, you know, don't cut off too much on the payers, and whatever, and you can imagine, then everybody rushed the barbers, so imagine yourself, you know, on, on uh, Erev uh, Shavuos, in a town like Belagia, with three, four hundred boys, and uh, when he walked out and was going home, uh, so who runs in the street? A good kid, you know, uh, like say a Mahasamid, nice boy, who ran to the barber, got a haircut, and then and, and then ran off to go back to learn. And the barber must have taken off too much. You know, it can happen. It's happened to a lot of people. You know, took off too much. All right, made a mistake. And, uh, you know, it'll grow back soon. And whatever. But then it's even just given a class in in the base matters, saying that people shouldn't be careful and, and, and not take off too much. But, of course, that boy wasn't there when, when they said it. So it's just a, 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 a human mistake. And he thought that the boy had deliberately defied him, which would make no sense because he was a goody two-shoes and a masmid and all that sort of thing. And he just lost it. And he slapped him two, three, four times across the face. So imagine you're a good guy and you're running to go back to the base manager with a Gemara under your hands from the barber. You know, I'm sure he washed his hands. And here's the Rosh Hashiva going by. And boom, you know, he get hit over the head or the face with like a physical assault. And oh, he broke down crying, and then see was angry. He thought that the guy was faking it or something, and he went off home. And the boy was like so depressed because you can imagine he's a good guy. Like what did I do wrong? And I remember the bashkiach and the wherever it was, saw this from outside, from inside the room. He came out and he immediately understood what happened. He went over to the guy and he said, "Listen, it was a mistake. Don't let it get to you. It was just an error. He didn't mean it. You know, I get what happened. I hop around, and the boy said, "No, this is the end of me." And I'm, I'm, I'm a Balavera, and I'm going to have to leave the yeshiva. And I don't know, it was a whole big, huge, you know, a business. And the news immediately spread to the student body. And they said, what is this? Like nowadays in America, you know, can you imagine somebody's going to slap somebody? We don't have that culture anymore. When I grew up, <laughs> you had that culture all the time. And TA, oh my goodness, forget it. But uh, times have changed. And times had changed in Volusian. And... You know, he had a large student body who considered themselves not little uh, kids in, in a cheder, but a B'nai Torah and Man uh, Malki Rabbonon and, you know, the equivalent of university students. And you don't hit anybody. Um, and the, she went on a strike. They immediately, uh, you know, spread throughout the uh, student body. And this is Erev Shavuos. And so they wouldn't let B'nai in to go learn. I don't remember exactly what happened, but they immediately, you know, formed strike committees and things like this. And, uh... How did it happen again? I don't know. The boy was sitting and crying in base matters. It was quite a... You can make a movie out of this. It was quite a scene. And this was in the 1880s. So the number two by that time was Nenetziv's grandson-in-law or whatever, Rechaim Brisker, Rechaim Salvechik. And he heard about what happened. And he knew the guy's a good guy. It's a good story. He knew the guy's a good guy and it was just a mistake. And he ran in and he said, no, 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 the whole thing was a mistake. Uh, I think the guy's name was Yeshaya, and he basically said like this, no, in Yiddish, you know, don't worry about it, the whole thing never happened, let's just make up it never happened, lo shririm, lo kayomen, betelim, mevutolim, ka'afra he used all the language mixing together of the kol nidre and the mechiris, you know, the bitul chametz, and so forth, and I'm telling you, elif pamim, lo klum, and it says garnish, garnish, betelim, mevutolim, and uh, it, it didn't help. You understand? It didn't help. And that night was Shavuos. 
and they all went to Dobbin. And afterwards, the Rosh Hashiva says, basically, you know, good yontif to everybody. Nobody went over to say good yontif. You can cut the, 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 the silence with a knife. Isn't that a story? And, oh my goodness, it's, it's a big tension. And what's going to happen over here? And finally, the chief said, I guess, he, he realized himself that he made a mistake, he went too far, which is just an interesting human story. This is in the 1880s, so he was in his 60s, okay? So he him in his 60s, and he went over to the boy he slapped, and he said, I want to beg, you know, slicha. I want to I want to apologize, and I, want, I don't want to wish you a good yontif, but I want you to wish me a good yontif. And, you know, of course, the boy said yes, and so forth, since he apologized him publicly, and, uh, and then they started singing, and they started dancing, and he made sure to take the boy in the, the Rosh Hashim, made sure to take the boy in the middle and dance with him, and everything happened, and you know, after that, all lived happily ever after, until the next incident that happened. All which goes to show there was a, a very fascinating and wonderful tension that existed, uh, you know, in, in this yeshiva, which made it the opposite of simple and push it. Uh, I want to take no more than five minutes, even I can't do this right, it's a I'll end up spending too much time, but I'm going to give it a, a shot. The because I haven't done uh, justice to the Nasiv as a scholar, uh, although it's very strange. Uh, he lived in the 1800s. This is the time when the Haskalah was big, and also its counterpart, the modern rise what they call Chachmas Yisrael, the Wissenschaft des Judentums, which means the modern, basically the the birth of modern Jewish history. That is to say the interest in Jewish history among Jews. And this became the hallmark of the conservative movement, the conservative Judaism, and its equivalent in, in Europe. And uh, became a big feature of the Haskalah. Not only, that's not the only part of Haskalah, but that's, that's one of them. And it's just fascinating to me that uh, I would identify, uh, you know, different streams of the Haskalah, um, a, B, and C, one would be the non-from one. Uh, one would be from people who are musculum. There are plenty of those. And then you have the Nitziv types, which is extremely rare. Torah Haskalah. What do you mean by that? Well, when he became the Rosh Hashiva, he wanted to show that he knows how to learn for the student body. Uh, and he published, because I told you, the politics, it was unbelievable. You know, It was, a, it was a, like a... a, a to some degree, uh, what's the right word? Like a you know shark nest. A uh, can't remember the exact term I'm talking about, but it's a you know it was a very difficult situation. And so in the 1850s, when he took over, he put in years and he got a special manuscript of the Shultes Rebbechai, which is Gaonic literature. Uh, most of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. The Shultes Rebbechai is the first book published after the Talmud, Torah literature. And Rabbi Choy was somebody living in the 700s. That's long ago. You know, the Amoraim finished around the year 500. And then you have the Rabbana Sabroi finishing around the late 600s or sometime in the 600s. And here already in the 700s, you have in the very, very early, early Gaonic period. And Rabbi Choy, who wasn't a Gaon exactly, Gaon means he had a job as Rashiva Sarum Pabadisa. He actually did not have a job. He was qualified, but he was kicked out for politics. But he came there to throw this person, Rabbi Choy Gaon. And uh, I'm calling them gone because that's what they do. And uh, he po- he gave speeches on the parsha of the week, and this became known as the Shultes Rabbi Choy. It's considered very chashev. Tosus quotes it, Bishonim quoted, 
but it's unknown. You know, I mentioned to you, have you ever even heard of it? And if you've heard of it, have you ever read it? Have you ever looked inside? Most people don't don't do that. And here, this Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who's Rosh Hashiva in Volozhin, which is the headquarters of the Litvish alumnus, so he's not publishing a safer as you might expect on Babakama. He's not publishing a safer as you might expect on Kachim. Uh, there are those who did that. That's a yeshiva type thing to do. Uh, but instead, he goes out of left field into this very obscure safer, uh, which has to do with uh, uh, old readings and gearses and things like that of uh, the Talmud. And uh, and he's putting a major commentary on it. He got, he got a hold of the manuscript, I think, from St. Petersburg or somewhere, uh, which itself is like weird because usually you don't do... Um, that kind of scientific scholarship by scientific scholarship, I mean, how do you know when I open a safer if I'm reading uh, the the correct uh, Girsa over here? I'm relying on the printer. What if the printer is wrong? What if the book was published in 1525? Uh, Does that mean the guys who published in 15 had to write Girsas in front of them? Maybe had a bad one. And then you have to undertake to do, in the 19th century, you have to undertake to do what they call critical scholarship, which means you have to find out are there any other manuscripts um, of this text? And where are they? And how many are there? Uh, do you possibly have a manuscript from the original author? Which is almost never. Okay, almost never. So then the next best thing you can do is find out what's out there. So in the case of Shultz or Bechai, for example, I think there are nine, if I remember correctly, manuscripts out there. You know, one in the Vatican and one in this place and one in that place. And uh, how are you supposed to know which is the accurate one? The only way you can do it is if you bring them all together in one place and then compare and contrast and analyze them, that's called modern historical scholarship, modern critical scholarship. Then it's even get all nine. He's in Volusia for crying out loud, but he got like one or two, which itself is a big step forward. And he published this huge commentary called Hamek Sha'ala, uh, which usually in the Yeshiva world they call Hamek Sha'ala. Hamek Sha'ala is a pusik in, in Yeshayo in Isaiah 7, 11. It means go in deep. But uh, fits in well for a, sh- a shelter b'chay. And basically, uh, the best way to explain this, even though this is not a good example, but I'm going to say in a way that I, I, I think you might get somewhat of an idea what I'm talking about, is think of it something along the lines of minchas chinech. You're using the sefer chinech as your organizing principle to bring in the other uh, lambdas. So here you're using the shelter b'chay because what he has is on the parsha of the week, Rabbi uh, Gon. And in each case, Shilti, he raises a Shiloh. Uh, it's a funny way he writes. Shilta means, here's the topic, and Bram Tzrich is the next paragraph, which says, now here's a Shiloh. Now, since we live in the year 2019, I'm sitting down here in front of my computer, and I just hit on the Safari, like I mentioned uh, recently in Parshat Vizchanan, and son of a gun, if you go to Shilta through a Chaygon on Safari, you have a nice print the whole doggone business. And so if we go down to Shilta, no, it's amazing, the computer now. Uh, Shilta number 147. That's on Parshas Re'e. There's like one here in Parshas Re'e. And what do you have over here? You have the first paragraph in which it says, that Jews have to be nice to each other and lend each other money and things of that nature. And if you don't, you're a bad person and all that. So, And then you have the second paragraph with the Shiloh, Bram Srich. Hadri... The people of a town who dug a, a well, and the people of the other town want to take it for uh, their use, and the first people of the first town needs it for drinking water, and the second town wants it for laundry, and then you have a Shiloh, you know, 
which town has, uh, you know, uh, preference or not, and he discussed it very briefly. Well, that's how the Shiltus reads. It's very short. And then you get the three-volume work of the Nitziv, and, you know, it's, it's a, like I say, it looks like the Mechaz you know, it's a huge, long commentary from Kola Torah Kul, and that, of course, blew everybody away. But I have to say, I don't think this is used much. What I mean is, although maybe I shouldn't generalize, I have the Shilter Rechai for many years. I don't use it hardly at all because the, the format doesn't seem to be so friendly. How am I supposed to know if I'm interested in some Gemara where the Nitziv has it and this huge work, three volumes of the Hamak Shela? Uh, over the years, I can I have to confess, if I saw it like in the uh, Or Hayosha from Hillman, you know, which gives them every page, every once in a while you look it up from over there. Knows if you have some kind of cheater book. But uh, ordinarily, it's not something the average person sits down at a time uh, to, to make a, a, a Seder in, although you certainly could. Uh, you certainly could. So here's this huge, big Rosh Hashiva writing a commentary on an obscure, Gaonic work. It's, a, it's, it's off the beaten track. There aren't any other big Rosh Hashivas in the 19th century that do that. Uh, he also got into the Michilta Sifran Sifri, which is exactly what the conservative rabbis and the modern guys were doing trying to get in Tanaelic literature. Not the Tosefta, interestingly, but the Michal Sifran Savri. So you can always get the... Uh, it's, that's out a lot. That you can see a lot of places. That I use a, a fair amount. If you see something in the Michal, which is on Shemos, or the Sifra, which is on Vayikra, or the Sifri, which is on Bamid Benvarim, there certainly is the Birch I think it's called. It's, it's a nice commentary, if that's a user. But again, what you see, we got what, the average guy doesn't... Go to these. They just read what's on the Gemara and the Rashi and Tosa and the, and the other Mepharshim. Although now maybe with the Masifta and all this, I'm not into that. Maybe they, they bring this stuff down. Uh, all I'm saying is that he wrote major works of scholarship, which are full of lumbus and all kind of original ideas. All kind of original ideas. Uh, but in, a, in, a, in an obscure format, it seems to me, I'm only telling you my opinion, so I don't think it gets much play. It's, it, it, I don't think it's been used that much. His Chumash Shafer is used a lot. That you see a lot of people around with the Hamik Dover, right? I mean, that you see a, a lot. Uh, and that has its own unique uh, aspects to it. But the thing on the Shiltas, which is like his major work of his life, I don't think the, uh, too many people sit down and, like I said, make it, make it center because the format is not uh, friendly. At least that's my impression. That's my impression. But I just want you to know, for those who are listening, if you go on Safaria and you want to have some fun, every week just look up on the Shiltas of Achoy, and it'll always be a paragraph or two or three, that's all. And it's an old Gonic Aramaic, but you can figure it out if you can. And uh, the one I did was Shilton number 147. And it's like a new day. And you can see this master page and they give you, you know, all the different uh, Shiltos out there. And uh, once you do that, then you can open up the Hamik Shayla, if, if you wish to, and uh, plow your way through one of these uh, discussions and commentaries there, which are very interesting, but dense. I mean, they're, they're not easy. At least I don't find them easy. And uh, it'd be some big lambda if you did that. Um, I don't know too many people myself that, that do that, which is which is just interesting. Because the Mechaz by contrast, which is written differently, is very popular. But the Shultas of Achoy of the Nitziv, uh, I, don't, I don't really see it. He has an introduction called the Kidma Semek, I think, or Darker Shultar, one of these names, which, by the way, was translated into English uh, some years ago, which was weird, in which he gives his own take on the history of the Torah That's what's weird about this. I don't mean in a bad way. He, has, he was extremely intellectual, but he had no shaykhus 
as far as I can see, with not only secular studies, but even the, the, the you know, uh, Jewish history, uh, you know, a classic way of doing uh, history, is all his own. And uh, I remember, for example, he says, you know, ever since way back when the Shevet Levi had this natural fin- uh, thing of just being able to chap halacha, if you ask him a shal, they just can intuit it. But the Shevet Yehuda had to use lambdas and pilpul to, to arrive at it, uh, which is why Asnil ben Kanas was able to restore the laws that were forgotten at the death of Moshe, whoever, the death of Yeshua through pilpul, you know. And uh, from a Tosus here and a Rajma there and an obscure Gemara here and a Michilta there, he weaves a whole grand uh, a theory of history of the Torah literature, which is most unusual, and then it seems you get very, very unusual and highly original, but it's like strange because it's 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 not the way we usually arrive at the understanding of of history. Uh, so he's his own. He you know he marches to his own drummer, and he's a, a tremendously original. Uh, same thing true by the way with the Chumash, um, going back to Adam and Eve even. But I'm already at almost 45 minutes of here, and I said to myself, I'm not going to go so long. So uh, this is just a very uh, fascinating subject. I, the only last piece I'll do, I can't leave this out, and then I'm closing this down, is he's a big Zionist. Before Herzl, did, you know, he died in 1893. But the Nesiv was very involved with the Chovei Zion, which was the pre-Zionist Zionism in Russia in the 1880s and 1890s. And he was a big macher over there. He fought very hard, as you might imagine, to put more Frumkite into the Zionist movement. I don't see he was successful in that. But he was a heavy-duty player, and he did not believe, at least in his lifetime, in the Frum separating and having nothing to do with it, but rather work within the system to try to uh, to influence it. Um, he was very opposed to the Heter Mechira, and if you look in his Sefer on Shalos and Shuvas, which will take me too long to go into now, you see he has a whole long business. He says, you tell Rothschild, that the farmers and all the work at Shemitah, that's the end of it. And tell him to pay through the nose because he's paying everything else through the nose. And the Shemitah is not a little business to be circumvented by Heter Mechira. And uh, I remember he uses these words. If you use, if you do the Heter Mechira, you'll end up with a Palestinian state. Use the word Medina Palestinite. I believe that's the first time that um, uh, phrase was used. Uh, but you see how easy I could be schlepped into long discussions of all this. And we don't have a long time. So. Uh, you can get what's out there. Zevin has this great article, as he always does, in the Ishim Bishitos on the Nitziv. His the Nitziv's son from a second marriage. I don't have time to go through the the marriage uh, politics. He had a very interesting marriage. He was married twice. A very interesting marriage politics. But now it's not the time to do it. Wrote a book about the father. That's I'm talking about Mayor Berlin, the, the founder of the Mizrahi movement. Um, these are the classic sources of old for Nitziv. And now recently, some professors and others are writing on different aspects of them. Uh, I feel I haven't done justice to this, but uh, I at least a few pieces of puzzle I wanted to throw out at you, and maybe on some other occasion I'll uh, supplement it. Um, mine is the Lush and Harm. Anyway, that's enough for now. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.